standing. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 this morning again, and I'm going to read verses 34 through 39 again this week, and we're going to look at all six of these verses together. So Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's Word. You guys can have a seat. So last week, we looked at just verse 34. And the reason that I took that verse alone was because I wanted to build this case for what Jesus is saying in these verses, verses 34 through 39, um, concerning His purpose as He sends out His disciples into the world. Because we have to get this idea in our minds really firmly and solid before we move forward. Because if we don't understand what He's saying, then the rest of these verses don't really make a whole lot of sense and we're going to have to do um, hermeneutical gymnastics to try to make these verses... Uh, say something different than what He actually intended them to say. And so the idea was that Jesus has come and he's, he's clearing up some presuppositions that people may have drawn from His ministry so far. And so He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. And we talked about peace. And we, we, we learned that this word peace is not quietness, it's not tranquility, it's unity. It's, it's joining together things that are apart. He says, I've not come to do that. So don't, don't get in your minds the idea that I've come to take two opposing sides and join them together and just make everything good. He says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so we talked about a sword. We went from Genesis to Revelation and we talked about what a sword is. That it has some, some literal... Uh, uses in Scripture, and it has some figurative uses in Scripture. But every time a sword is used, the word sword is used, it's always uh, symbolic of at least division. And mostly strife and contention and warfare and bloodshed and battle. That's usually what a sword means. Punishment. And when, when it's used to um, as an analogy for Scripture, it still says that the Word of God is, is sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow, 
It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of division and separation. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to join together. I've come to separate. That was verse 34. Now today, we're going to take this idea, we're going to unpack it, and He explains, and then I'm going to give three different areas in which this separation takes place. And they, they start from the largest scale, a big scale, and they, they kind of funnel down into a, a more intimate scale. Um, and, and this idea is really just Jesus unpacking what He said in verse 21 into the beginning of verse 22. And if you want to, you can look there. He said... Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so Jesus is just unpacking that a little more. And what that means that there's going to be a brother against brother, father against son. And, and hatred by all people for his sake. And so... Um, I've grouped these into three different headings. Um, the division of the earth, we'll see in verse 34. Verses 35 and 36, we'll see the division of the, the household or the family. And then in verse 38, we're going to see the division of the individual person. So it starts off big, the earth. Then it comes down to the, the household, the family. And then it comes even uh, more intimate, even more... Uh, even closer when it comes to the individual man. That's what we're going to be looking at. Um, but before we get to that, I want to explain something. Look at verse 35. Verse 35, Jesus says, For I have come to set. I have come to set. Okay? Couple that with what we read in verse 34. He says, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Now if we expanded verse 34, what he's implying is, I've not come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword. So in two verses we have, I've come to bring a sword, and I have come to set. What Jesus is saying is, I have intention in this, I have purpose. I am the one who's causing this division. It's me. I'm working this. So, Jesus... Christ, the Lord, is sovereign over the dispensation of this division. He wields the sword. So we've, we've, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 10, and I've done this several times, I'm going to do it again, just if, if nothing more for the sake of, of keeping this a very Christ-centered sermon. The beginning of chapter 10, verse 1, Christ calls His disciples and then He equips them. With power. And then in verse 5, he, he sends them out and He instructs them on where not to go and, and where to go. In verses 16-25, through 25, Christ warns His disciples. Verses 26-33, through 33, Christ comforts His disciples. And in verse 34-39, through 39, Christ divides. This is all centered around Jesus. The Christ. It's all about Him and, and centered around who He is. He is sovereign over this division, wielding the sword, because all of discipleship is focused around Him and who He is and what He taught and, and the message concerning 
His life and His death and His resurrection, it's all Christ-centered. It is because Jesus Christ and, and all that He reveals to us about God, all that He represents, all that He fulfills from Old Testament Scripture through the New Testament, all that He says to us in His life and through the apostles and all that He does, it is because of all of those things that this division takes place. If He had never come, there would be no division. It's, it's because of Christ. And what I want to do, and I'm going to use a phrase today, that, that's the reason I'm clarifying this. If we take all that Jesus reveals and represents and, and taught and said and did and, and fulfilled, we sum it all up in how it comes to us, we could call it gospel grace. Everything that Jesus represents to us comes to us in the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. The good news that we as Christians have received freely something that we didn't earn or didn't deserve and can never pay for. Freely given. So gospel grace. All that Jesus is comes to us as gospel grace. And Jesus is the full embodiment of all that the gospel is. He is reconciliation for us. He is redemption. He is atonement, forgiveness, sanctification. All of that comes to us in the person of Jesus. This is not abstract ideas. It is a man who is also God. And so it is because of Christ coming to us in gospel grace that we receive gospel growth and gospel transformation and gospel renewal and gospel application of what we learn. All of it summed up in gospel grace. And the division that we're talking about here is a division in the dispensation of gospel grace. Some people get it and some people don't. It's dispensed. And since Christ is sovereign, there is intention. I have come to bring a sword. I have come to set. I am in control. I am sovereign over where this gospel grace goes and where it doesn't go. And the reason I want to clarify all of that, that ultimately all of that was Christ is sovereign over this, is because sometimes we may be under the impression that we're going to do the best that we can and, and some good's going to happen, but there are a lot of bad things that are going to happen and a lot of rejection and a lot of persecution. And, and, and what Jesus has come to do and what Jesus does in us is He just wants to corral His sheep and get us away from the bad as if He didn't plan on it, as if He didn't know it was going to happen. And what He says here is, no, no, no. I have come to do this. I have the sword of division I am cutting down. I am dividing the people. I am dispensing the gospel grace as I see fit. He is sovereign over the dispensation of gospel grace. So keep that in your mind. And now let's look at these three different divisions that I've, I've grouped this section into. And just remember, and I'll say it over and over, Christ is sovereign over these. So the first one in verse 34, we see the division of the earth. The division of the earth. Verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Or we could draw that out. I have not come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring a sword to the earth. Now, in this heading, under the earth, I've also got three subheadings. One is the division of certain nations. 
Then the next one is the division in certain people groups within nations. And then there's a division between people within people groups. And, and I'll, I'll repeat all those in a minute. So the first one, the reality that certain nations throughout history have been given more gospel grace than others at different times in human history. We can't deny this. We, this, is, this is not, um, I'm not arguing to try to plead a case. What I want to do is just help you to see that this is what has happened. And we'll see the reality of history and we will, of course, worship Christ because of His sovereign power. With Christ coming, all of humanity, from the beginning of time to the end of time, the entire human race is divided. There are only two sides. Jesus will say in Matthew 12.30, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Two sides. You're either for me or you're against me. You are my friend or my foe. We are comrades or we are enemies. There are not separate sides. There, there, are, there are separate sides. There are no more sides than these two. In Matthew 25.32, Jesus will say, Speaking of Judgment Day, before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Not male sheep and female sheep and male goats and female goats. Not, not mature sheep and, and immature sheep and mature... No, it's, it's just sheep and it's goats. You're either a sheep and a goat. And there's no, uh, there's no uh, smudging that line as to whether or not you're a sheep or a goat. You're either a sheep or a goat. And there are two sides. There have always been two sides. The entire earth and the entire human race is divided into two sides. And we saw this last week. We have evil versus good or godly versus uh, natural, fleshly. There have always been these two sides. And the law came, Jesus comes to fulfill the law to make these sides more distinct. Two sides. So if we look in history, we go back to the Old Testament, we can look at the nation of Israel versus the Gentile nations. For the most part, God had only revealed Himself to the nation of Israel. For the most part. There were little glimpses here and there that the Gentiles knew God, but for the most part... Gospel grace was only dispensed to the nation of Israel while the rest of the world was in darkness. In the book of Acts, Paul travels to certain places. And in the book of Acts, we see that, that shift where the gospel then goes to the Gentiles. And Paul says in Romans, you know, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they've rejected Christ. I would, he says in so many words, I would almost go to hell for my brothers because they don't believe. The, the tides have turned and now the Jews don't believe and, and the Gentiles were receiving Christ. And so in his travels, in the book of Acts, we read in Acts chapter 16, I think this will be up there. Listen to what, how Luke records this. He says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So Paul says, I want to go preach the gospel to Asia. Holy Spirit says, no. And when they had come to, up to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So I want to go to Bithynia and preach the gospel. No. 
So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there, very clearly, God, the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, don't go to those people, don't go to those people, take it to those people. There's division with these nations, these people groups. No, don't go to those, go to them. We, we come in through human history, you think of the Middle Ages in Rome. Prior to the Middle Ages, Christians were persecuted and killed by the droves by the church. Okay, then Constantine comes along and he makes Christianity the state religion, which is, which is for the most part a bad thing. Um, and Christianity progressed for the most part by the sword and people were forced to confess Christ and be baptized. And that, that's how we should, I mean, that's, we should never progress the faith in that way. But even in, in and amongst that sinful pushing of the faith and making a state religion, there was actual gospel progress and the gospel was, was, went around the world because of those times, because Christians were no longer killed. It wasn't all bad. In Europe, during the Reformation period, the 1500s, you got Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and these guys who are transforming cities through preaching the Word. And they're, they're, they're protesting the Roman Catholic Church and they are rising up, they're translating the Scriptures into the language of the common people, they're preaching the Word of God to the common people, and cities are transformed. Government changes because of the Word of God. Whereas now, if you go to Europe, they are completely post-Christian. Their, their church buildings are nothing more than just great art forms for people to look at and, and, and stare at and, and, and gawk at. In America, during the Great Awakenings in the 1700s, again, cities were transformed because the gospel was being preached and people were finally hearing the word and the Spirit was moving in a, in a, in a magnificent way. And so... The modern mission movements happen. We begin to send missionaries all over the world and the, the world is receiving the gospel. We, we, when, even when we were younger, we would hear about people going to China and Africa to be missionaries. Well, now those countries are sending us missionaries. China and Africa have more missionaries or more Christians than we have people. And some say that Africa will be the central hub of Christianity on planet Earth in not too many years. See, this, 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 this division happens where gospel grace goes to a people and it flourishes. And then it's like it's just snuffed out and taken somewhere else. And then it's snuffed out and taken somewhere else. There's never been a time in history when the entire world all at once was receiving this wonderful gospel grace ever. There's always a division. Some people are receiving it and some people are not. And this division is caused by the gospel of Jesus Christ and He is sovereign over that. And He says where it will go and where it will not go. So that's the nations. But we also have to note the reality of certain people groups within nations having been given more gospel grace than others at different times in history. Within even various national borders, there have been different people groups or smaller cities or villages 
who were separated out by God's sovereign mercy and receive gospel grace when others do not. If we go way back in the beginning of the Old Testament, you have Abraham and, and, and the Jews. Before the law came, they, they were not a political nation. They were just a family. It was just Abraham and, and, or Abram and Sarai and his nephew Lot. And God was guiding them and revealing Himself to Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham, whereas Abraham's parents, the other nations of the world, other people groups, they didn't know this God. They didn't know who God was. The Hebrew people versus Egypt during the famine. you got this people group who go into Egypt. There's a famine all over the known world. And, and Egypt, the, the people of Egypt and the people of the land of Canaan are coming to Egypt and they're selling their uh, animals to buy grain and then they sell their land to buy grain and then they sell themselves to buy grain. While the Hebrews are in the land of Goshen and it says they're gaining possessions, they're flourishing, multiplying, they're doing fine. That is the gospel grace of God flourishing that people in the midst of famine. And then in Jesus' ministry, listen to this. This is, this is pretty amazing when you, when you realize what Jesus says here. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You realize what he just said? He said, if I would have went to those people, they would have repented. But I didn't go to them. I came to the people who I knew would not repent. I came to you, and you rejected me, so woe to you. Those people over there, they would have received me, but I didn't go to them. This is the sovereignty of Jesus. And His, his purpose is on the earth. He dispenses it when and where He sees fit. There's always this separation. And then the last one is, is just select people. Notice the reality of select people around the world whose circumstances seem to be very similar and by all outward accounts, we would think they would be the same. And yet they're not. Um, the, the, I think one of the greatest examples of this is Peter and Judas. Both disciples of Jesus. Both followed Jesus for three years. Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. Judas betrayed him one time for some silver. Judas came back to try to take back what he had done. And, and it, was, it was of no use. Peter ran out weeping because of what he had done. Jesus hangs himself. is in hell today. Peter becomes a rock and pillar of the church. We read his... his Writings to this day as Scripture. Why? Well, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has requested that he might sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He didn't say that to Judas. He said, what you do, do quickly. Sovereign gospel grace. The two thieves on the cross... The Gospels tell us that from the beginning, they were both ridiculing Christ. By the end of the story, one of them is talking to the other one. Hey, hey man, why are you talking to him this way? Don't you know he's done nothing wrong? We're here for what we've done. This man has done nothing wrong. When you 
enter your kingdom, remember me, Lord. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Two thieves on the cross started off the same. One is in hell today. One is in heaven with the Lord. In the book of Acts, we have preaching among the Gentiles. Listen to this from Acts chapter 13, 48. One of the clearest Scriptures in all of the Bible as it pertains to divine election. 13.48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So you got a group of Gentiles who hear the Gospel. Some get saved and believe. Some don't. Why? Well, this says those who were appointed to eternal life, they're the ones who believed. What about those who weren't appointed to eternal life? They didn't believe. Separation. Division. And the sovereignty of God. And then, on the last day, Jesus in Matthew 24, speaking of Judgment Day, He says, Then, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two men working in the field, same occupation, probably lived in the same area, probably both had wives, probably both had kids. One is taken, one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Again, working together, probably lived close to one another, probably had husbands, probably had kids, probably grew up in the same area. One is taken and one is left. This is the division of of people who seem to be so very similar. They seem like if, if they're, they're either going to go one way or the other, but they're so similar, they would, of course they would go the same way. And it's just not that way. There is division and Christ is sovereign over that division. And then secondly, the second point after the division of the earth is the division of the family. Or the division of the household in verses 35 and 36. Look there, he says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now this is perhaps the, the most sobering of all of these truths that Jesus is addressing. A man against his father. A daughter against mother. This is, this is separation uh, or, or rejection of, of generational or, or familial faith. These moms and dads have raised their children, taught their children the faith, and they don't believe. Or maybe it's the other way around. A child believes when the mother doesn't. There's separation. We would never hope for this. None of us who have children would ever hope that our children would walk away from the faith. But we all know it's happened. We all know people our age who were raised in a church, taught properly, maybe even made some sort of public profession of faith. And then they have turned from their uh, familial faith. Again, we can go to Scripture and see examples of this. you got Cain and Abel, born, born from the same parents, both worshiping God. Cain ends up offering a sacrifice that is not pleasing to God and kills his brother and is expelled from the covenant people. Esau and Jacob, two brothers, both born in the covenant family, 
twins by all accounts, what we would consider twins, Jacob carries on the covenant and, and has 12 sons and they carry on the covenant that becomes the people of God. Esau acts like an idiot for most of his life and ends up leaving the family and doing his own thing and, and later comes back and he's in, in contention and strife. The, the Edomites are in strife against, contention against the children of Israel. Why? Why would they not just both believe the way they were raised? Well, before the two were born or had done anything either good or bad so that God's purpose of election might continue, Romans 9 says, God said the older will serve the younger because Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Before they were born. God's sovereign plan. We go to the sons of Jacob. You've got these 12 sons born to the same man. You would think they would all be generally the same and then Simeon and Levi rise up and murder a whole city worth of men. Just wipe them out. Every man in the city. Kill them all. Judah leaves the family, goes down and ends up sleeping with a prostitute. No big deal. Except for she was actually his daughter-in-law. Gets her pregnant. Now Judah eventually comes back to the family and, and it seems that Judah ends better than he and he started, but you compare that to Joseph, who was you know, the apple of his father's eye and did what his father asked him to do and, and kept a, an eye on his brothers, was hated because he was just the favorite. They seem like they would have continued in the familial faith. Some do and some don't. And then you got this idea of the, the daughter-in-law versus the mother-in-law. This is an idea where th that, that a, a new family member introduced into the family causes strife and division within that family. And we can kind of understand how this would happen in our culture. you got a family who has a son or a daughter and they raise them up. We'll just say it's a guy. Raise him up. He's in church. He, he seems to love the Lord. Seems to really be in pursuit of Christ. And then he turns 15, 16, 17, 18. Meets a girl. She's attractive. She's fun. She likes him. She gives him attention. It's, it's generally sexually driven. And, and she doesn't believe the way he believes. Well, mom and dad, you know, there just comes a time when I gotta, you know, take, you know, gotta make my faith my own and I gotta be my own man. And, and it just so happens that being my own man means being my own man the way she would have me to be my own man. And, and so he, he leaves or she comes into the family. Maybe they, they do get married and he is pulled away. But ultimately, it's this, this sexually driven, introduce a new person into the family and they're gonna pull somebody away because. They're driven by more than worship for God. There's always another type of uh, motivation there. Examples in Scripture, again, um, Samson and Delilah, they never got married, but you see Samson, who was uh, an Israelite, raised to be a good man, a judge over the people, and then Delilah comes in. Oh, he always had a problem with women, but Delilah comes in and ends up bringing his demise because of what type of woman she was. In the book of Numbers, chapter 25, I recommend reading that sometime this week. Crazy story. Um, the book of Numbers, chapter 25, the, the children of Israel are uniting themselves with the Moabites. And they're worshiping the gods of the Moabites. And God sends a plague and He says, hang a bunch of the priests where everybody can see them. And, and there's havoc is breaking out because the Moabites have being, are being united to the Israelites and they're, they're worshiping their gods. And so the people are brokenhearted and they're mourning and weeping before the tent of meeting. You can picture all these people bowed down, crying out to God, 
so that he would, would, would relieve his wrath and stop killing people. And here comes a guy named Zimri walking through the crowd with a Moabite woman just in front of everybody, a woman named Cosby. They go into his tent. And Phinehas, the son of Aaron, the priest, gets his spear, follows them into the tent, and pegs them both to the ground because of his zeal for the worship of the Lord. That the picture is this, this sexually driven uh, pulling away of the people of God. That's what happens with a, between a, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. You've got this woman who's not a part of the family, comes in, marries into the family, and draws a son away and causes division in the family. Now, verse 37 takes us on sort of a, a caveat, a little detour to explain the foundation of the issues beneath this uh, division over Christ. And the basis of the problem, we'll just read verse 37. He says, For, or he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here's the problem. To love Christ more than other people, even those you're close to, will cause division when those people either disagree with you or they would seek to um, compete for your affections. They may not like it that you love God more than them because your love for God may come into conflict with your love for them, your time with them, um, your obedience to them, or whatever it may be. It's, it's a, a problem of where your love is and where their love is. You love God more than you love them and they more than likely love themselves more than they love God. Listen to this from Psalm chapter 55. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. That's why division takes place. is because there's evil in their heart. Division between people who are companions and friends. But there's evil in one heart and love for God in another. And what Jesus is saying here is you must love Christ more than you love your mom or your dad. You must love Jesus Christ more than you love your son or your daughter. And there may come a time when persecution breaks out and, and it's not they're going to kill you. It's they're going to kill your children. A knife to the throat of your son or your daughter and they say, if you will just recant your faith, your child will live. Would you not just recant your faith for the sake of the life of your child? Do you love Jesus more than you love your children? And I'll just add this, your children and your spouse, they need you to love Jesus more than you love them. They deserve that. You're not doing them any good if you love them more than you love Jesus. And so... That's what he's saying. You have to love me more than them, more than your parents, more than your children. He says, if you don't, you're not worthy of me. This idea of being worthy of Christ, hopefully should, should drive your mind back to the Old Testament where, where the law said, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. 
to worship God properly, He must be the only God you have, the only focus of your worship. And He will not be worshipped alongside of anything or anyone else. And to try to set other loves and other relationships and other, other idols on the same position or the same shelf with God is to prove that you're not worshipping God because He will not be worshipped alongside anything else. Here, Jesus is speaking. And of course, we know that Jesus is God. There's no difference here. The, the rule has not changed. The Lord Jesus Christ will be held to the utmost place of exaltation and majesty or He will not be had at all. You don't get to have Him along with everything else. And to reduce Jesus to the same level as your friends or your family or your co-workers or your job or your career or whatever it may be, to reduce Him to that level is to prove that you do not know Him. How different is this idea of us being worthy of Christ? How different is that than what we're commonly taught or the way the, the culture speaks of Christ? We oftentimes act like Jesus is a beggar looking for friends. That, that Jesus is sending out friend requests and He needs you to accept Him. We even misuse the passage in the book of Revelation when we say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will open up to me, I will come in and sup with him, and he with me. Jesus is just outside in the street, cold, and he's knocking on doors. He's just hoping somebody would let him in and get warm and eat a cup of soup. That's, that's not what that verse means, first of all. And that's not how salvation works. We don't tell people, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. I like a quote by David Platt on this point. He says, quote, Accept Him? Do we really think Jesus needs our acceptance? Don't we need Him? Jesus is no longer one to be accepted or invited in, but one who is infinitely worthy of our immediate and total surrender. End quote. You see, it is we who are desperate and we who are without hope in the world and we who, who need forgiveness and reconciliation. We who are doomed. We who stand to be judged because of our sin, because of our rebellion against a holy and a righteous God. And Jesus is the only hope that we have. He's the only way that we can be reconciled to God. He's the only way that we can be forgiven of our sin. He's the only way we can escape the judgment of God. We are expected to live lives worthy of Him. Jesus has not put together a portfolio or a presentation that He gives to us like He's trying to get the job of Savior and Redeemer and Lord. That's not how it works. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. He is Lord. Our job is to repent of our sin and fall at His mercy and trust in Him. And then live lives that are worthy of Him. And that's what He's speaking of here. Only the disciple who is willing, not by necessity, but willing to lay aside everything, put aside every personal relationship, every personal love for the sake of Christ, take up his own cross and follow Christ wherever he leads. Only that disciple is worthy to be called a disciple. Anything else is subpar and unworthy of Christ. 
So that's the, the little caveat. And then we come back to verse 38 and we see the last division, the division of the, the individual man. Look at verse 38. He says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The final division, the most intimate division that will take place because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of His Gospel is the division that takes place within the individual person. And if you're a Christian, you've experienced this division and perhaps still experience it every day. Jesus says, whoever does not take His cross. This is the first mention of the cross in the New Testament. And His disciples were were probably... Uh, bewildered by this statement. They knew what a cross was, but they had no idea how the cross would relate to, to their following Him. The cross was used for grotesque torture and punishment. And so Jesus is saying, you need to take up your instrument of torture and punishment and follow Me. The idea is self-denial, self-sacrifice, self-rejection, self-abasement. Take up your cross. And then he says, follow me. That is devotion to him. Devotion to another. Not devotion to yourself. Not chasing your dreams. Chasing your aspirations. Pursuing your purpose. No. You follow me. Take up your cross. Instrument of punishment and torture. Follow me. Now, both of these ideas, self-denial, devotion to another, these go against the grain of the natural man. This is completely unnatural to us. Because the natural man, the Bible says, is at enmity with God. Hostile to God. Unable to come to God. Has no desire to please God whatsoever. And so this division comes in and it, and it cuts in two within the man. It divides the man. Or Paul would call this the circumcision of the heart. You're divided in two. You have now, as a Christian, the old man, the old nature, still there, but you've also got the new man, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And there's this division, and they war against one another constantly, waging war within our members, Paul would say. Constantly battling. I, the new man, must take up my cross and follow Jesus, while at the same time waging war against the old man. Is the division here. And to follow Christ will often, at first and, and continually, put you at odds with yourself, your own natural inclinations, your, your instincts, and also with others who do not follow Christ. And this will happen as you condemn sinful behavior, whether openly or just by abstinence. You know, the world, they're going to begin to notice that when they invite you to do certain things and you say no, even if all you say is no, they feel the spotlight shining on their sin and their transgressions. You haven't even said anything. You just said, no, I'm, I'm cool. But they, they take that as you coming against them and condemning their behavior, which you kind of are when you say no, and they will hate you for it. The division takes place just simply because of a rejection of, of worldly thought patterns and, and natural inclinations. So there are the divisions. The division of the earth in nations and people groups and individual people. There's, there's the division of the household, of the family, the home. And then there's the division that takes place within the, the natural man inside of your own heart as you become a Christian. And in verse 39, we see the final outcome of all of this. He says, Whoever finds his life will lose it. 
And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses his life or whoever finds his life will lose it. To find here means to find for yourself, to get it for yourself. So he's speaking of of life from the perspective of the individual. You're finding your life for yourself. And and when he says lose it, that means to destroy or to utterly kill. So he says, if you find your life for yourself, you go after and get your life, you're going to lose it. Physically, someday, spiritually, for eternity, your life will be destroyed, utterly killed. You may obtain it in this life. You may obtain your passions, your desires, your, your dreams, your aspirations. But in the next life, you lose it all. Scripture says, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The answer is nothing. You've gotten nothing. So whoever finds his life will lose it. But the, the, the contrast is whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever sets aside, denies his life right now for the sake of Christ finds true life. Abundant life, real life, the life you were created to live, you find that when you set aside yourself. And it's interesting, I think, that the way to find true life, abundant life, eternal life, is by denying your life, by setting yourself aside. This is the complete opposite of the world's teaching. They say, go after your dreams, find your purpose, achieve your goals. Set goals, go for them, and then when all that's done, you will finally be where you need to be. God says, no, 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 no. Christ says, follow me. Set aside your life. Forget that life. Follow me, and you're going to have real life, this life, and in the next life. And this should, if we read this properly, should be connected with a scarlet thread back to verse 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. See, we are to be like Christ if we're going to be his disciples. And for us to lay down our lives for his sake brings us true life. Only because he first laid down his life so that we might have life. He started it. He went first. He laid down His life. He, he died for sinners so that we might have eternal life. And now we lay down our lives for His sake on account of Him for His name so that we might have eternal life and, and true life here and now. We were dead in our trespasses and sins at enmity with God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's where we were when He died to give us life. The first resurrection. In, in days past, when someone asked another person how old they were, they would refer back to their, the, the point of salvation. Because before that, the Bible teaches you're dead in trespasses and sin. So, how old are you? Well, I'm five years old. Well, you look a lot older than that. No offense. Well, I just became a Christian five years ago. Before that, I was dead. I was a dead man. The first resurrection that comes because Christ died for us. But, this is only true for the Christian. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you you have uh, no hope. You do not have this abundant life. You're still walking in sin and death. A dead man. Dead in transgressions and sins. Unable to come to God. Unable to please God. You can't do anything about it as 
a non-Christian. So, do I know that I'm a Christian? First of all, these, these truths apply to Christians. Do I know that I'm a Christian? Not, do I know that I prayed a prayer? Not, do I know that I signed a card? Do I know that I raised my hand one time? Am I trying to live better? Am I trying to go to church more? That's not the question. The question is, am I a believer? Am I truly born again Christian? Has there been a moment in time when I realize I'm a sinner? Dead in trespasses and sins. And I can do nothing about it. And I deserve hell. And if something doesn't happen, I will spend eternity separated from God and I deserve it. And so you, you repented. You cried out to God. God, grant me the ability to turn from my sin. To worship you. I, I claim Christ and His life and His death in my place because my life is, is no good. That's, that's salvation. That's, that's becoming a Christian, do you love Christ more than anything else? This is another of the, the major themes of this section is loving Christ more than anything else. Is He your prize? Or do you like Jesus because He gets you heaven? Or because He gets you out of hell? Or because He, he sounds good on a t-shirt or a postcard? Or, or He frees you from guilt? These things may be true, but that's not why we come to Christ. We come to Christ because He is our only hope. Because He is our prize. He is our joy. We want to go to heaven because Jesus is there. And if Jesus is not there, we might as well not go. So, do you love Jesus more than anything else? Truly love Jesus. Desire Jesus relationship with Jesus, time with Jesus, growth with Jesus and into Him more than anything else. And if you say yes, is your life showing that? Does it, does it, do you really? Or, or is it just something you say? Something you actually pursue? Or something that sounds good in public? The questions that we have to ask one another when we come to this passage as disciples of Jesus, and of course, none of us are perfect. We're not all where we should be. But there should be growth. There should be fruit. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word.